by a friend that today is uh, Ash Wednesday, but also uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, the church tends to observe Ash Wednesday. Uh, the world tends to observe Valentine's Day. And maybe it's an interesting conjunction because it, has this, it is at this particular day where love and death or love and our mortality uh, are conjoined and they are brought together in this moment. But it is also our understanding that at Easter, uh, in fact on Good Friday, when Christ died on the cross, love and death met together on the cross and it was love that kept Jesus on that cross. So we come to this first day of Lent, this celebration or rather this remembrance rather than celebration, this remembrance of Christ Jesus and a 40 plus 6 days. Uh, as, a, as a child, I used to try and figure out, okay, it's supposed to be 40, it's significant, but if you actually start counting the days, it's, uh, it's 46 days from now until Easter. And part of the reason why is because you actually have a few Sundays and we normally don't count the Sundays uh, within there. So it's 40 days, not counting uh, the six Sundays uh, that will pass between this period. A friend of mine used to ask, uh, you know, what is it that Christians do during this 40 days of Lent observation? And this uh, Lent observation is, uh, for some people, a fasting uh, but when they ask, so is your fasting very much like how the other faiths uh, fast? And I said, you really need to understand what is the purpose of the fast. And so for the Christian, rather than speak about what the other faith uh, systems do, uh, I'd rather highlight what uh, we as Christians do. And so maybe one of the first questions you want to ask yourself since you are here is, what am I observing in these 40 days? What exactly is the purpose of these 40 days? Uh, again, as a child, someone, some of my Catholic friends will come to me and say, okay, these 40 days is meant to be a period where there's no chocolate. Uh, and for my friends who were in school, it meant for them maybe uh, 40 days that go past with no, uh, no watching cartoons, which is terrible because on Saturdays, we always had cartoons for the whole day. And so we used to joke around and say you were very, very uh, sober and glum over these 40 days. Uh, is that the purpose of the 40 days? And as we grew a little bit older, we, we realized that some of our friends uh, would actually be fasting. And so there'd be some form of fasting or otherwise, uh, either from chocolates or from certain foods or certain activities that tended to give them joy which kind of upset me because this 40 days isn't meant to be a, a, a very long and protect, protracted funeral. Uh, this 40 days is meant to be a remembrance of Christ Jesus. And so I had to search a little bit harder and say, what is this 40 days for? And one of the first indications as I grew a little bit older and I went to the seminary, it says, okay, the 40 days is also symbolic of what Jesus went through 40 days in the desert, in the wilderness, fasting. Now, it doesn't tell us what kind of fast it was other than the fact that it was a 40-day fast. And in the Bible, uh, the 40 days are generally symbolic, symbolic in the sense of a period long enough uh, to represent repentance. And repentance is, in a way, a turning away 
from the things that, uh, uh, that, that are offensive to God, that are against God, and returning back towards where we are called to be. Some of my uh, Malay friends, when I grew up, they say, Hey, you puasa sama macam kita ke? Uh, and, and the question there was related more towards what exactly are you doing? Is it a fast from sunrise to sunset? And can you drink water or can you drink, not drink water? And it's quite interesting sitting down with them because they have all these rules. Okay, you cannot swallow your saliva. You're not supposed to smoke. You're not supposed to indulge in all these other things. Um, but I asked them, you know, you do this, but you eat a lot before and you eat a lot after. Uh, and so they said, some of my friends said, yeah, quite true, we put on weight. <laughs> some of us put on weight during uh, Puasa month. So is that the purpose? And when I spoke to my uh, Malay friends, he says, the purpose of the, the Muslim fast is to understand what is going through the ummah, the other believers, uh, and the pain and the suffering that they go through. So I had to ask myself, as I'm asking you to ask yourself, is the purpose of your fast in order to inflict a form of suffering upon yourself in order that you might understand what it means to be poor or what it means to be hungry or what it means to not have? Is that the purpose of what it is? We need to examine our purposes in order to come rightly before this 40-day period. Uh, so in our essence, when we look at this for us, the reason why we fast for this 40 days or why we go through this period of uh, intentional setting aside of the ways of this world is in order that we might follow Jesus and draw closer to God. Because fasting doesn't necessarily draw me closer to my fellow men. In fact, most of us, when we've not had breakfast or lunch or dinner, get very hostile <laughs> to our fellow friends. You know, a hungry man is worse than a hungry bear. And so the purpose of fasting is in a way to draw us closer to God, but more intentionally a denying of the self in order to pursue several things. And so for today, I thought we'd look at the temptation of Jesus in order for us to frame this 40 days that we go through. Now, it begins in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Uh, let me repeat that again. <clears throat> then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I'm not sure whether it hits you yet, but the reason why this is particularly alarming is, one, Jesus had just been baptized. The Spirit of God had just descended upon him. And a voice uh, that tore apart the heavens had said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's so well pleased about him that he sends a spirit to then usher him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And so some of the first indications that we have about this period of 40 days that we're going to go through is that this temptation 
is allowed by God. It is, in a way, a temptation by the devil or the ways of this world, but it is the Spirit of God who is leading Jesus into this period of testing. Because this temptation is, in a sense, a testing. In fact, the actual word can be translated as the testing of Jesus. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, verse 2, he was hungry. So we acknowledge that Jesus was human, that he felt this hunger and likely felt the tiredness. And it is at the lowest point of his physical strength that the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, it is not meant as a a question that is doubting uh, Jesus' ability or position as the Son of God. It is, in a way, a rhetorical question. More like, since you are the Son of God, and if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. To become bread. And after all, you have that power. Uh, Many friends of mine, when they go on this uh, trip to Jerusalem, they come and sometimes the tour guide will take them to a part of the desert and say, these are the stones. And if you look at the stones, some of these stones look like bread from a distance. And maybe Jesus was having this hallucination uh, where he saw these stones and he was dreaming of bread. Whatever story it is that they tell you, the narrative says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, is it to say that Jesus does not have the power to do so? And the answer is definitely no. Jesus does have the power because many times in the gospel, you find that he multiplies fish and bread out of nothing. He was given uh, two fishes and five loaves and he fed 5,000 or 7,000 at different accounts. And so much so that the leftover was either seven baskets or 12 baskets in different accounts on different occasions. And so we know that Jesus did have the power So why didn't he do it then? What was the big issue? He says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I remember even as a child in Sunday school, it was always drummed into us. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's drilled in so often that you can parrot it, but just because it's drilled in doesn't mean I understand what it means. What does it mean when we say we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? There are two particular writers that I'm going to refer to. Uh, One is a a philosopher, uh, known apologist, uh, Ravi Zacharias. And the other one is this less known but uh, equally distinguished uh, professor, Andre Nguyen, who was in a way a a theologian who dwelt in all the spiritual contemplations. And so they put across this particular thought that the first test that Jesus encountered was a test of the intellect. Ravi Zacharias puts this, that this is a test of the intellect. What you believe and what you know, is it based on the material or is it based on the spiritual? Is it based on the material or is it based on the spiritual? 
we tend to believe that science and uh, a, a new world order in terms of postmodernism and the way we understand the world is based on scientific evidence, which primarily has to be dependent on material, physical things, because unless it's physical, tangible, and observable, it is not repeatable, and if it is not repeatable, it's not provable. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms, man shall not live on bread alone, the material things that feed you, but on the Word of God, the spiritual. And right from the beginning in Genesis, it always affirms this idea that before all the material existed, before this world came into being, God was there. And if God is spirit, and He must be worshipped in spirit and truth, Jesus is affirming a priority, that the spiritual is more important than the material. That comes first. Henri Nouwen, on the other hand, comes with another view that says, this is a temptation to be relevant. And why does he say so? Well, if you had the ability to feed all the poor in the world, if you had the ability to heal all the all the sick people in the world, wouldn't that be a power that everybody would say is utterly relevant? And that belief would then be that if you are relevant, then you are useful to me. And if you are useful to me, then you are a God that is worth following. Jesus, on the other hand, decided to say, no, it is not my relevance to this world but my relevance to the Word of God that affirms who I am. And so we struggle with this question. If Jesus had the ability in order to save and feed the entire world at that time, everyone would come to Him immediately and say, You are our God. You are our King. And yet He chose not to. How does that speak to us in all our temptations? In all our temptations, are we tempted to be relevant to the outside world, but utterly irrelevant to the spiritual issues that challenge us? Many of my friends nowadays are, are wrestling with the question of bringing up their children. And the number one thing they tell me is, you know, I, my work is uh, very pressured, I'm traveling a lot. I have to do all these other things and we have to maintain a particular lifestyle. And so as a result of that, you know, I, I have to work crazy hours and I don't have enough time to spend with my children. And so my question to them would be, which is spiritually more relevant? The lifestyle you search or the comfort that you need or the love and affirmation of your children and your family? More importantly, is the life of the kingdom more important or the life of the kingdom of this world? Which one will you pursue? The material or the spiritual? The one which you think will solve all the problems of the world but is in essence a lie. Because in spite of all the technology we have, it has not solved all our human problems. So what do we believe in? Do we believe in our intellect 
that the material far surpasses the spiritual? Or does the spiritual really matter? And if we really believe in the spiritual, what does it therefore mean to us when Jesus says, come, follow me? Are we truly following what Jesus is calling us to do? Or are we busy playing both worlds? And so the invitation to this 40 days is in a way a beginning to basically reconsider what are we being relevant to in this world? What are we really believing in this world? Are we believing the material world is more important or the spiritual? For 40 days, we make this choice to allow God to speak to us in the Spirit and to follow that path. What about the next temptation? In verse 5, it says, The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and saying, If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, it's also fascinating to note that not only do Bible scholars quote Scripture, but the devil also quotes Scripture. And so your ability to memorize and quote Scripture is not a reflection of your holiness or your closeness to God. We do deal with this particular question, yes, if Jesus had thrown himself off this particular tower, uh, the scriptures would affirm that God himself would send people or angels to rescue him. But why is it being mentioned, the uh, devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple? So this is, a, in a way, a, a little bit of a small model of the Jerusalem temple during the period of Jesus. Okay, this is before uh, the temple on the mount. Uh, when the other faith basically has built a, a mosque there. But in the early period of Jesus, if you look at the surrounding area, the largest uh, structure central to the whole of Jerusalem is the temple. And at this temple, there is what we call uh, the pillar or two particular pillars that are at the entrance of the temple. These are, in essence, the highest point in the whole of that city which would mean to say, if you were placed at that point on top of the tower and you were to throw yourself off this particular tower and then something spectacular really happens that you are suddenly saved, everyone would have seen it and you would have been popular. You would be the star that everybody had seen and everybody knows. And to some extent, Again, Jesus was either popular or unpopular, famous or unfamous, but otherwise everyone seemed to know him in Jerusalem. So why did he not choose to go down this particular path? Again, Ravi describes it, Ravi Zacharias describes it as a test of the will. Whose will will you follow? The will of the popular masses or the will of your Father in heaven. And it is at this point in time where we affirm that Jesus knew all throughout his ministry 
that his, that his father's will was that he would journey to Jerusalem, face persecution, be rejected by his own kind, reviled, persecuted, wrongly trialed, executed, and on the third day rise again. It was not the popular choice. It was not what everybody wanted him to do. But he nonetheless did what was the right thing to do. And it was a test of the will, not of his will, nor of the people around him, but the will of the Father. And so we struggle with this because in all our temptations, some of our greatest struggles with God tend to be what I want as my will as opposed to what God wants as His will. Now, it might be as simple as, why is it I have this kind of boss? I would rather have another kind of boss. And God, since you are in control of all things, why do you give me this kind of boss rather than the boss that would be the best boss for me? If we really want to stretch it really far, my will is that my loved ones would not suffer and die. That they would not go through debilitating sickness and death and they would not have to suffer in their end years. But why is it that God allows these things? And so we recognize a test also that Jesus had to go through. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays this prayer to the Lord. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so how many of us, countless peoples I have met, spoken to, wept with, and been angry together with, have had to drink this bitter cup of not our will, but God's will. In grief, many of us have had to wrestle and have slammed our head against the wall of silence that God sometimes presents to us. And we know Jesus went through this. He wept tears of blood and he knew how much trauma he was going through in order to do the God's will. So again, in these 40 days, how will you test your will? Will you follow your way or will you follow the way in which you have made this commitment to be like Jesus in setting aside your daily things and following unto Him what you have agreed to do? No one is asking you to fast. You make this decision to do it of your own. But when you do, you're making it a covenant to God. Likewise, when we covenant to marry our spouse, husband or wife, we make a covenant. No one's forcing you. But we make this vow before God and we hold it because we are covenant keepers. And so this test of the will, this test to follow the will of God rather than the popular will, because all our friends will come and say, come and follow us, lah. just ignore that for a day. It's okay, nobody's going to die. It's also a question of, are you a promise keeper? Are you a covenant keeper, one who holds to what you say you will do and will follow not your will because you are following God's will, you will follow it even when it hurts you. The third test comes along 
After Jesus said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And to put the Lord your God to the test is to, in a way, force God to do what you want Him to do rather than to follow His will. The next test in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I mentioned this last Sunday, and I'm going to mention it again. There was a very famous theologian, a Japanese theologian, who said many of our issues when we wrestle with God boil down to this one very important question. And the question is, is God good? Is God good? And if we look at the evidence, we might tell ourselves, no, I don't think God is good. You know, uh, the Holocaust happened, people perished, uh, Saigon happened, the Cold War broke out, millions of people in China, millions of people in Russia died, and it would seem as if God is not good. But at the same time, we must ask, do we believe that He is good? Because if you do not believe that it is good, then there is no hope. I say this again because it's hard to grapple with it. If God is not good, then we are hopeless. What good is there to hope in a God who is not good? What good is there in order to trust in a way unless we know that He will work it out for good? And once we come to accept that God is good and we hold and trust to this and that we remain hopeful, we may find evidences and glimpses that truly He is good. How we do so is a matter of timing and how we do so is also a wrestling match with our God. And maybe this 40 days is a test of basically wrestling with God with the issue of what we believe about Him. Ravi argues that the third temptation that we have is a test of our imagination. A test of our imagination that we believe that we could be Lord over all this world. But is it Lord over all this world as promised by the devil or the systems of this world? or the mindsets or the powers of this world? Or is it to be given this world according to the truth of how, gives it, how God gives it to us? There is this temptation in us to be spectacular, to want to do things that are popular, that want to do things that are relevant, and wants to do things that are spectacular. We shy away from doing the small stuff sweating the small stuff, doing the stuff that is not seen. And so Jesus, rather than wanting to be seen as king over all kings, highest over high, decided he would do the non-spectacular things. 
He would wash the feet of his disciples. He would basically go and confront enemies and love them. He would go and confront people who hated him and yet would die for them. Truly an unspectacular death. One to be pitied sometimes if we look in the way of this world. Because at the time of his death, he lost all his followers. At the time of his death, everyone left, except maybe some of the women who said, all is lost. And they wept at his cross. How do we imagine this world? And is it an imagination that is salted with God's truth? Is it an imagination that is lit up with God's light? Or is it a vain imagining of our own ideas or grandeur of how things ought to be? Many times we pray for things to change. I know many of my friends sometimes are thinking, oh, GE14, pray for change. They also prayed for the same in GE13 and the same for GE12. And so someone might say, maybe your prayers are not effective. My question might be more, what if this is how God wants things to be? Not so that we would be arrogant to think that we can change things according to our imagination, but that whatever the situation comes, we will continue to be faithful to what God calls us to be in spite of our failure to imagine a better situation in the midst of the darkness around us. So dear friends, in these 40 days that are to come, how will you test your intellect? How will you test your will? And how will you test your imagination in how you understand God to be with sober truth rather than wild imaginings, hopefully? With deep patience for God, and also, in a sense, the reality that he does not do the spectacular that you expect, but he does the real and honest and lowly things. He is a God who works sometimes in our shadows, and he does the unseen things. I pray that in these 40 days, when we spend time to slow down and stop trying to be so relevant to everybody, everything else except God, that we would find time to be still and spend time with God. In verse 17, after Jesus had been tempted and he began preaching, he went around to many places and he began to preach many things. But at the essence of everything that he preached is this particular statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I say that from verse 17, a little bit further in our chapter. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so in these 40 days, we want to come closer to this kingdom of heaven, which Jesus promised is near 
It arrived the day that Jesus landed on this earth. It arrived and became fuller in our understanding the day Christ died. And it will come in its full glory when Christ comes again. Until then, our current dark circumstances in the darkness and in the light, Jesus described as this is the kingdom of heaven. It is at hand, it is hidden in the spiritual life and those who seek it and pursue it are few. Will you do like what Jesus called Peter to do? In John chapter 21, verse 15, when Jesus came and encountered Peter, he asked Peter, do you love me more than all these? In the 40 days that we go through, that is the question that I would suggest you wrestle with. Do you love Jesus more than all these? Your wealth, your talents, your treasures, the things that you have, do you love them more than God? Sometimes we ask ourselves, do we love our loved ones more than God too? And in Matthew 16, 24, Luke 9, 23, and Mark 8, 34, Jesus makes this command, really, again and again and again. If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. And so in this 40 days, it is in essence a following of Jesus. Do what he did. Think the way he did. Pray the way he did. Feel the way he did. And a casting aside and a setting aside of all things that we might draw closer to the mind of Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, even as we spend a few of these moments in silence, we hear the sirens around us and the sense of life that is going on all around us, Lord. You showed us that Jesus overcame this urgency and will, the sense to be relevant to the world instead of being relevant to the ways of your Spirit, that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, spiritual bread. And even as we wrestle in the days to come with what it means to seek popularity rather than humility, help us, Lord, in the testing of our will to surrender our ways to yours and not to our own ways. So we lift up to you, Lord, our base emotions, our anger, our jealousy, our frustration, the things that move so freely in our will, even without our control. We want to surrender it to you and ask, Lord, that you teach us your humility and your will, that we might move according to your spirit rather than ours. And Lord, we ask in these 40 days 
that you cause us to imagine according to your way rather than the ways of this world, that our imagination will be salted with your truth, your sobering truth of the reality of who we are. Sinful creatures redeemed by a gracious God who fills us with light and love and who calls us his children. And teach us to love you more than all these things of this world and to follow you, Lord, wherever you may send us. Remind us again, Lord, of our mortality. For throughout your scripture, you remind us from dust we came and to dust we shall return. Help us to number our days, Lord, that we might be intentional in our pursuit of you rather than the things of this world. We ask this, O Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.